Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We know that we are a blessed people just because you are our God. We are a blessed people because Jesus Christ is our Savior. Lord, you have given us nothing else. If we've been living in poverty, if we've been living with disease and illness and things of this world that bring men down, if that was our lot in life and we were only saved, it would have been more than enough. Indeed, your salvation is sweet. Your salvation is sure. And your salvation has changed us completely and permanently in a way which has prepared us to be with you in glory one day forever. A birth all been procured for us by a babe who was born in Bethlehem's manger, who grew up a man without sin and who died on Calvary's cross so that he could pay for our sin in his body, was raised from the dead, and this morning sits at your right hand, a resurrected Savior, our high priest, interceding on our behalf, waiting for the moment we'll come back and take us to be with him. Father, as we open your word this morning, uh, we pray that you may bless us, give us hearts that are receptive, hearts that are obedient, our minds that can understand, and so when we leave these doors, we may do everything that is in our power to glorify, magnify, and honor you in the things we do and the things we say. Pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. The title, the title to my sermon this morning is a kind of a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> Jesus, whose son is he? This, uh, this theme has been the center of sermons uh, for 2,000 years. Uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. It was a theme of, of prophecy before that. For thousands of years as they look forward to the coming of the son, uh, the Messiah. We look back and we've preached about this so often. So uh, there's very little surprises. I'm not going to give you anything new. There's nothing you will hear this morning you haven't heard before. And the intention is not to try and uh, make you hear something you haven't heard before. It's really a desire to, consul- to consolidate what we already know into, into something we can take with us. And it will encourage us as we face the new year, despite all its uh, challenges, that we face it, realizing that we have one who is our Savior and Lord, who is in control of all things. So having said all that, can you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, please? Uh, I'm going to go to various scriptures. Uh, some will ask you to read with me, and some I will just quote to you, depending on time. But let's go to Luke chapter 2, and we'll read the first seven verses. You've heard this so often already this last few days. It will be reading one more time. Luke 2, verse 1 to 7 says this, In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So, to the right at the very start, uh, bear in mind that the title of the sermon is uh, Couches a Question, Jesus, whose son is he? Just simply reading that portion of Luke's gospel would say, well, it's obvious. Uh, the answer to the sermon is that the name uh, of Jesus is the son of Mary. 
And that's true. He is the son of Mary. We've just read that, that account in, of his birth in Luke chapter 2. This is preceded in chapter 1, verse 26 to verse 33, by Gabriel announcing to Mary the words that astound her. Mary hears something which she never expected to hear now. Israel was waiting for the coming Messiah. And Israel was expecting to have him born in a certain way. That when he was announced to the very person of whom he would be born, it was astounding. Gabriel says to her that the son she will bear will be the long-awaited Savior. Mary instantly recognized that when he, she heard the name he was to be given, Yeshua, Yahweh, Savior. When the angel said that to her, being the biblically astute girl that she was, she recognized right away this was a special name. A common name up until then, and yet now to be used in a way that was extremely special, being applied to a special person who alone was worthy of being that name and truthfully fulfilling the meaning of that name. Secondly, Gabriel's sister, he will be a, of divine origin. Gabriel announced that he will be called the son of the Most High. Mary was a, a young girl. At this point, Mary was, to all intents and purposes, less than 15 years of age. Uh, that may be astounding to some people, but yes, she was a young girl, barely in her teens, already pregnant with her first baby. Uh, and that was common for the culture and for the day and for the history which, 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 where she finds herself. But as uh, the angel says to her, he will be called the son of the Most High, Mary probably went right away in her mind to Psalm, 40, to Psalm 47, where it says, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. We know from Mary's Magnificat that she was well acquainted with the Old Testament. She could string together a, 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 a several verses and prophecies to raise up a song in prayer, to the Lord that she was about to bear. And so in Psalm 47, she recognizes from the psalm, because he was from the Most High, that he would be a special person. The third part of the Annunciation identified the son, yet to be conceived as the, as the successor to the throne of his father David. Late in the Gospel, uh, chapter 3, Luke will trace Jesus back to David, through David's son, Nathan. So all of this is coming together in bits and pieces. And this morning, as we go through these sections, try and track with me as we try and loop together a number of things you already know. And let us just try and get an understanding of how this progress and how we get to answer our sermon's question this morning. So Luke traces Jesus back to David through David's son, Nathan. Nathan was not in the line to be king, even though he was a brother to Solomon. David, um, Nathan and Solomon had the same mother, Bathsheba. Uh, that woman was uh, used by God in a, in a way which God had planned. We understand that how she became David's wife was something we all wish David had avoided nonetheless. What David had decided for himself, as sinful as it was, God used to fulfill his purposes. And this woman gave birth to two men. This one, Nathan. And later on we talk a bit about Solomon. And even though he was in the line um, of uh, David, though that Nathan was David's son, he wasn't the son who would inherit the throne. Nathan was not in the line to be king. And even though being in this line, Jesus would not have access to the throne. So if Jesus, being born of Mary, had only had a genealogy that went through Nathan, he would not have access to the throne. 
is to give him legitimacy as a member of David's family, but not making heir to the throne. So how does Jesus come to have, have David's blood flowing through his veins, since he had no human father to give him this link? And because he doesn't have that link, we have to understand how does he come to have David's blood flowing through his veins, making him over the royal family, but not in the royal line to kingship. And since we can't look at his father, for we already know that story, which we're going to revisit very shortly, we have to look at his mother. And so it appears that Luke's genealogy of Jesus Christ is based on the lineage of Mary. Now, I see flags going up, I see red flags going up, I see ears being propped up, because this is a debate that continues all the while, as to whether the genealogy in Luke 3 reflects Mary's lineage, or it's another version of Joseph's. And so there is debate. And um, there's a lot that is discussed. Um, and I will call it sanctified speculation because a lot of it is speculation. Uh, Luke is not uh, clear. Uh, in fact, what he says may be that he is part of, of, uh, is part of Jacob Joseph's lineage. But I think differently, and I'm going to put my point to you this morning, I'm going to have to prove it, why I believe this is Mary's lineage. I think we can show from Luke's own writing that there's a strong support for the Mary family tree. The prominence that Luke gives Mary in the opening chapters is hugely significant. I will read them to you, just follow and track with me. In chapter 1, Luke makes frequent reference to a relative of Mary's named Elizabeth. Whereas Mary is a young girl, Elizabeth is a relative advanced in age. And God gives her a son in her old age. You remember the story? Her husband, Zechariah, goes into uh, to work in the temple. Uh, he gets a vision from the angel. He's told he's going to have a son. He's a, little, he's a little taken aback by that. He's struck dumb and tall. He says, until your son is born in your old age, and you name him John, uh, then you will get, and he gets his speech back. But the focus really is a lot on Elizabeth because she appears more and more in this passage as Mary's relative. Luke records in detail the way Elizabeth responds to Mary when the unborn baby John leaps in a womb at the visit of Mary. Mary is threaded through entire opening chapters of Luke. Luke then records an amazing song of praise from Mary as she stitches, as she, as she stitches together numerous Old Testament texts in a way that is astounding for such a young girl. <clears throat> she pulls things together uh, and is definitely led by the Spirit as she just magnifies the Lord. Uh, in a Magnificat that we now know is a song of Mary. In chapter 2, Luke brief, briefly refers to Joseph and then quickly turns attention back to Mary. Luke chapter 2 verse 4, Luke says this, And Joseph also went out from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David. And then Luke, from verse 5, says, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so Luke turns attention at the very birth of Jesus from Joseph to Mary. And he, and, and he, and he emphasizes that. Luke chapter 28, <laughs> Luke chapter 2 verse 8 records the shepherd's journey to Bethlehem to see how the newborn babe swaddling clothes is lying in the manger. That was given as a sign to them. The Magi, the wise men, uh, all 335,000 of them, not three, not sure how many many there were, they were given the sign of the star, a very special sign. And we won't touch on that today, maybe in another sermon in a year's time, if God wills. 
But the shepherds were given a, a different sign. A babe wrapped in swaddling clothes laid in the manger. And after writing that, they, after writing this, Luke shows that they find Mary and Joseph and the baby. And then Luke records this in, uh, in Luke chapter 2. Mary, it was Mary who treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And so Luke's emphasis on Mary throughout his opening chapter, I believe, is significant. In chapter 2 again, verses 22 to verse 38, Luke keeps Mary in the picture, not by mentioning her name, but he keeps the picture because he recounts uh, 40 days after Jesus' birth that they go to the temple so that she could fulfill the rite of purification of having given birth to a firstborn son. And it was required by the law of Moses. And so Mary and Joseph find themselves with the baby Jesus at the temple where she is going to perform the rite of purification. And while they are there, they do something that wasn't required of them in that it had to be done in the temple, but something that was required by law, and they dedicate the, the firstborn son to the Lord. It is at that time that Simeon, a devout and righteous man, takes up the baby in his arms, and he blesses God by recognizing the salvation that this baby will bring. And although both Joseph and Mary marvel at what they hear, it is to Mary that Simeon turns to deliver prophecy about the baby Jesus. He speaks to Mary. And so, Find Luke closes this chapter with this account of Jesus in the temple. Uh, and so, uh, rather as we go through Luke's, uh, uh, the chapter of Luke, he closes that account of Jesus in the temple uh, years later, 12 years later. And being left behind after his parents travel back home, uh, we find his parents are distressed. And Luke records Mary as the one who comes to reprimand him. So right up until that point, 13 years later in the life of Jesus, uh, Mary is the one who finds him after he stayed behind and his parents move off without him. And she is the one who brings him a word of a reprimand. And he needs to set her straight by identifying himself as the Son of God, being about his Father's work. Luke's final comment in the section is another reference to Mary when he says in chapter 2, verse 51, and his mother treasured up all these things in the heart. He said that twice of her. And so the the the, the, the evidence in the first two chapters of Luke that is focusing strongly on Mary, uh, I think is hard to miss. Luke's consistent and detailed reference to Mary makes it most likely when he records the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3, it is lineage of Mary he has in mind. I think it's very strong. And uh, remember very clearly that uh, whereas Matthew, uh, a Jew, uh, an apostle, uh, writes to a Jewish audience, about the coming Messiah, who is also a son of God, uh, Luke is most likely a Greek, uh, writing to a Gentile uh, recipient and a Gentile audience, uh, pointing out that this one who is going to be the Messiah uh, was born in a very natural, normal way, like all men. And it's that genealogy that I believe Luke picks up and has in mind Mary as the natural mother of uh, Jesus and how through that lineage... He takes Jesus back all the way to, uh, to God himself. So whose son is Jesus? What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's uh, lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds God and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. 
So whose son is Jesus? He's Mary's son. We know that. We really knew that. But I think as we think about how uh, the writer of the Gospel of Luke sees the significance of Mary as his mother, I think as we look at that, we understand clearly that uh, what happened to her uh, was a special occurrence, a unique once um, in a, uh, who can't say lifetime, once in the case of the entire existence of all of creation, this happened. A miraculous, supernatural conception uh, of a, the Son of God by a virgin girl who then gave natural birth. Remember, the birth was not supernatural. She gave birth in a very normal way, like all women do. But the conception, she was uh, with child, conceived from the Holy Spirit. So what about Joseph? Does Joseph preach anyway? Is just Joseph any claim to fame as being a parent of Jesus? Whereas Luke focused on Mary, Matthew shines a spotlight directly on Joseph. And that dichotomy is so stark. Uh, Matthew's focus is on this man. Uh, it is to Joseph in Matthew's gospel that the angel appears in a dream and instructs him not to divorce Mary, who is now at least three months pregnant and showing um, Joseph and Mary grew up, both are from Nazareth. They both grew up in Nazareth. And uh, Joseph eventually goes back to Nazareth with Mary. So they were known in the community. And this is at least three months afterwards, and she is showing that she's pregnant. And so, Mo, so Joseph obviously is taken back by being a just and a righteous man. He wants to put her away uh, without making a scene. And the angel stops him uh, and knocks him for six and the angel says he has to marry her as she will be giving birth to a baby conceived in her from the Holy Spirit. It is Joseph who is told to name the baby Jesus. Matthew one twenty one. It is Joseph who of his own volition takes Mary as his wife. Matthew one twenty four. It is Joseph who names the baby Jesus. Matthew one twenty five. It says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Note that Luke simply says he was called Jesus, but Matthew says that Joseph named him Jesus. So whatever Joseph heard from the angel, Gabriel, struck him and stuck with him, and he believed it. If he had not believed it, he would have left Mary and gone his own way. But we know that that doesn't happen because God's plans do not change. And so he marries her, does not know her, uh, has no uh, relationship with her sexually, and he waits until his baby is born, and he names the baby Jesus. Jesus. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph several times in dreams in Matthew. Chapter 2, verse 13, Joseph is warned about Herod's impending slaughter and flees to Egypt. Chapter 2, verse 19, Joseph is instructed to return with the child to Israel. Chapter 2, verse 22, Joseph is warned in the dream and diverts to his hometown, Nazareth. With unmistakable emphasis on Joseph, it's easy to see that the genealogy of of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17 is a record of the lineage of Joseph. I think those two accounts are so stark, it's hard not to make that connection. The question we have to answer is, should Joseph be recognized as the father of Jesus? In one sense, the answer is clear. If we read Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, 
uh, which seem to indicate that, may well, Joseph shouldn't be considered the father of Jesus, although Mary is the mother of Jesus. Uh, Matthew's Gospel uh, clearly discounts the biological fatherhood of Joseph. His blood is not flowing through Jesus' veins. Mary's blood is flowing through Jesus' veins, not Joseph's. So the question to answer posed in the title of the sermon may appear to be no. Uh, he's not the father of Jesus. But therein lies the conundrum. Because Mary was linked by bloodline to the house of David through her forefather Nathan, a natural born son would also be part of that bloodline and automatically be a member of the Davidic family. But this would not give him access to the Davidic throne. That is a clear uh, understanding of the line through Nathan. Access to the Davidic throne had to come through Solomon. And therefore the route to the throne had to be through Joseph, who was a descendant of Solomon. That poses huge questions. We will not go over the number of um, interpretive challenges uh, concerning these lineages. There are a number of things which seem insurmountable. That these are huge brick walls uh, in, the, in the story of the coming Messiah. Uh, wars bigger than uh, Trump could build between Mexico and uh, the US of A. It seems big, it seems, and yet God, through all of that, what, remaining faithful to his promises, remaining faithful to his judgments on men like Perez and Jeconiah, remaining true to what he uh, had imposed on them, and even seeing that those judgments seem to put a an obstacle in the way, God works around that. And so we find uh, Mary is married to a man who names her son and who is not the natural father of Jesus. But simply because he was not the natural father of Jesus does not mean that he was not his legitimate father. That is something we must look at very carefully. Legitimacy simply means that something is legal. That it complies with the law. A person can be a son through birth or through adoption. And both would make a son legal in that relationship. Either case is legally binding. While formal adoption uh, was not clearly defined in Jewish law, it was clearly defined in Greek law and practice. It was clearly defined in Roman law and practice. It was not clearly defined in Jewish law. It had been widely practiced and accepted as a binding relationship. The reason for adoption was usually to provide an heir where no natural-born son was present. It's time for only one example. The example is from Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. You all know this example. It's an example concerning Abraham. Before Abraham actually has a son, he can call his own. In, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Listen, after these things, uh, this is after Abraham had left Ur of the Chaldees, after he had uh, left his father, I stopped in Haiti for a short while, and now in chapter 15, uh, God is uh, covenanting with him. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. If you're not Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. That was, the, that was the predicament facing Abraham. He had no heir. He had no son of his own. But he had an inheritance to pass on. Just as David 
has an inheritance of the throne to pass on and can only pass on to a son who has his blood in his veins and who qualifies to be in the line of, of, of kings. Uh, in the same way, Adam has an inheritance which was given to a son. He has no son, except this Eliezer of Damascus. And so we find that without discussing the challenges within this genealogy, it must be noted as a descendant of David through Solomon and the royal line, Joseph qualified as an heir to the throne and he passed that qualification to Jesus through an accepted a process of adoption. And this rite of passage would be passed on to any person adopted in the place of his firstborn son. Jesus was that adopted son of Joseph, making him both regal through Joseph, or regal through Mary, and legal through Joseph. He was both the regal and the legal uh, qualifier to sit on David's throne. A throne, by the way, which was promised to be forever. And he's able to claim the throne of David, uh, his father David. But was Joseph ever recognized as his father? We know that from our reading and our understanding of the New Testament and looking back into the Old Testament and the prophecies and the Psalms, we understand that, yes, Joseph was his legitimate father. But what about the people of his day? What about the, the hoi polloi in Nazareth? What about the people that have children? What about Joseph's uh, carpenters, uh, Joseph's customers, he made tables for and he made cupboards for. What about uh, the people who saw Jesus growing up? Did they recognize Joseph as his father? Well, first of all, in Luke chapter 2, we have the Simeon, the Simeon encounter. Uh, and Luke says this, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So it's clear that Luke, the writer of the gospel, recognize that Joseph is the father of Jesus. He calls him that. He puts him, on, puts him on equal stepping with the mother, father and mother. So, well, he's the writer of the gospel. Maybe he's got a uh, kind of uh, skin in the game. Um, he wants to prove a point that maybe it's not there. Well, in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 48, we find there is that, that temple incident. Um, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why do you treat us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So Mary recognized Joseph as being his father. So clearly within the family, there was no thing about, uh, I'm your mother and this is your adoptive father. It was your father. Uh, and he was recognized as such. Again, you may say, well, that's very close to the core of the story. I need something a bit more, um, more independent. Luke chapter 4. This is the account of the Nazarene synagogue event. Jesus, go, Jesus ends up in Nazareth, who is about to be um, dismissed, uh, ignored. He stands up in the synagogue, he takes up a scroll, he reads about himself. And in verse 20 of chapter 4, it says this, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here are men in the synagogue, who are not members of his family, they are the, 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 the inhabitants of uh, the small town Nazareth, um, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been filled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Remember another time they asked, Where does he get his understanding and his learning? They saw him growing up as a young boy, a carpenter's apprentice in Nazareth. And they, were, and they marveled at the words that came from his mouth as an adult man. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So they recognized Joseph as being the father of Jesus. Joseph was the legitimate 
and rightful father of Jesus as far as the earthly context goes. The local community in his hometown, Nazareth, recognized Joseph as his father. So the, so the question, whose son is he? We can say with ease and confidence he's the son of Mary. But we can say with equal confidence he's also the son of Joseph. That takes us to the next line in that family tree, David. The legitimacy of the father of Joseph is essential in supporting a far more significant father. Remember very clearly, I said this earlier, and if you read the, read the genealogy, this is important. Jesus has to get into the line of David and Solomon and down from that line uh, to all the king, to the, in the kingly line, to be able to be the, the son of David who sits on David's throne. Joseph is the gateway. And we already said that, well, he's not the biological father, but we know that he is a legitimate father. But that relationship of Joseph and Jesus um, is significant in as much as it makes Jesus qualified for a better and greater relationship. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, we read this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. The Lord speaking to David. David's at the end of his life. David wants to build a temple. David wants to do the great things of God. And God says, no, you're a man of war. And he speaks about his son uh, in the next verse. Uh, he says, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my, for my name, and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. So the perpetuity of David's throne as uh, kingly throne is passed to Solomon and that perpetuity is reinforced. This is an unconditional promise by God. It doesn't mean that you, your throne will be yours if you do so and so. It's going to happen. It cannot be changed. It has to come to fruition. When we get down later in that same chapter of 2 Samuel 7 verse 16 and it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, speaking of David, will be established forever. God promised David that his house and his kingdom will never end. This is the promise of an earthly kingdom and the rule on the throne of David in an earthly sense. Make no mistake about it. God's promises to establish a kingdom in which his son, the greater David, rules is coming. The throne of David is not in heaven. The throne of David will be on the earth uh, where the first throne was. And that son will reign as the son of David. This promise has not been negated even though its existence is temporarily suspended. And is yet to be fulfilled and relies in the future time. The question there is which of David's sons will occupy this throne? The throne soon to come. Let's ask Paul. As Paul um, uh, is recorded by the same writer of the gospel we read this morning, Luke. Luke records Paul as saying this in Acts chapter 13. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands and said, Men of Israel, and you fear God, listen. The God of this people, of his people Israel, chose your fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And, will, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And so we find that this people uh, are born in Egypt. Um, and God from a small family makes a nation. And millions walk out of Egypt. And the promises that God has made to them will all be fulfilled. In verse 22 of, that, of Acts 13, it says this, And when he had removed him, God had removed uh, um, 
Kish, that Saul, he raised up David to be the king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David's son of Jesse a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as promised. There's the son of David that will sit on David's throne and rule with equity and power and authority. Verse 32, and will bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this has, this he has fulfilled to us, the children, by raising Jesus, also as is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Understand clearly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was significant in that it um, completed the work of salvation and answered for sin. And God was satisfied with its work on Calvary by the suffering uh, of the servant and was raised from the dead so that we could have a living, glorified, glorious Savior soon to return. But there are many things that are ratified and um, empowered by the resurrection. One of them is that that throne will happen. That throne will be set up. And the one who was raised from the tomb will in, sit on the throne. This is prophesied by Isaiah. For to us a child is born, for us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, and from this time forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. None of that. Second Samuel and Isaiah 96, Isaiah chapter 9 was lost on Luke. Luke confirms this when he says in chapter 1, verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. And be called the Son of the Most High. I'm repeating this because it's essential to understanding that this man, Jesus, is not just the babe in Bethlehem. He's not just the one that we see in nativity plays laying under a blanket in a, in a cradle, and that's all we know about him. Neither is he the one only we see at Easter time on the cross of Calvary. That's important. And the cradle leads to the cross. The cradle is meaningless without the cross. And the cross is meaningless without the tomb. And the tomb ultimately gives meaning to all of God's plans, including the reign of Jesus Christ on the throne of David. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Whose son is Jesus? Obviously it's Mary's son. Obviously it's Joseph's son. And now we've seen he's also the son of David. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greatest son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. The tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever. That name to us is love. David was a great king. With all his faults and failures, his warts, his problems, his sins, all of that, he was still king after God's own heart. He was a great king. He was a king that... Uh, brought Israel to glory <clears throat> through uh, power, through might, through the sword, and through being a strong leader. But it's a greater king coming, one greater than David, David's 
greater son. Does it end there? Well, we know as we read the genealogy, genealogy, it doesn't. Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The simple question about whose son Jesus is clearly does not have a simple answer. And the verse in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, adds to the complexity. For not only is Jesus Mary's son, and Joseph's son, and David's son, is also Abraham's son. So don't lose track of this connectivity. Jesus is David's son by virtue of lineage, Mary's uh, blood ties, and Joseph's legal ties uh, make their son heir to the throne of his father, David. And now keeping with that in mind, Luke says in chapter 1, verse 30, again about, and we've read this to you so many times, about him being the one who was on the throne of his father. If there is a king, and think David and son of David, then there must be a kingdom. David was a king, and there's nobody being a king without a kingdom. Uh, there's nobody being a king and not reigning over your people. There's nobody being a king and having a throne that does not exist, or a land of which you have no sway, or being a king without real practical sovereignty. And a king requires a people and a place to exist so that the king can reign. The people and the place are provided by God through an unconditional promise to, Ab to Abraham. Genesis 12 is 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Chapter 22 of Genesis. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham in a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, that was the offering of Isaac, or the near offering of Isaac, or the not actual offering of Isaac. Although Abraham intended to orient his purposes to do that as a faithful servant of God. Because myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The promise of blessing to Abraham was not only for the people that had come from his loins, but for all who come by faith. And the only one qualified and able and willing to make that all possible was the son of Abraham himself. We heard this in detail yesterday, not as Denver preached to us from Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it's clear that right from the very beginning, right from the uh, inception, reading the, about the Proto-Evangelion, how God has this view of the offspring would come, would be a significant one, would answer all the claims that God had uh, because of sin, he'd answer for that, and he would, reel, he would reign as God's supreme sovereign and potentate. Verse 15 of Genesis 3. To give you an example, brothers, even, uh, sorry, um, I've gone now to Galatians chapter 3, sorry, Galatians chapter 3, not Genesis 3. Galatians 3, Paul picks up this, and he says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So remember there's a, there's a covenant being made, and Paul, and Paul says, even as man-made covenants cannot be changed, 
Neither does God change His covenants, especially those that are unconditional. And now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, it says, who is Christ. And so the son of Abraham, the single seed, the single offspring, namely Christ, becomes the ultimate recipient of the promise of blessing. And in him, all the nations will be blessed. Ringing in your ears should be the prophecy of Simeon when his baby was born. A light to the Gentiles and a blessing to your people in Israel. All nations will be blessed by him. Galatians 3 verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then your Abraham's offspring is according to the promise. The children of Israel became Abraham's physical, innumerable uh, offspring as uh, through um, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, he gets um, children who eventually become the tribes of Israel. And so we find this huge offspring, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand and the sea. We have become his offspring as children of faith. Because we are of children of faith, we, our father is Abraham, a man of faith. And all of that was made possible because of a single offspring, the seed that came to crush the serpent's head, the seed of the woman, who is Christ. And because of that seed, uh, the son of Abraham, we all have come into this blessing that God promised to Abraham. Again, I remind you of Simeon's words in Luke 1 verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, looking at the baby, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. So, to answer the question, whose son is he? He's Mary's son. He's Joseph's son. He's David's son. He's Abram's son. Does all of the force here then satisfy the question? Has the question been settled? We know what we have just said. However, Luke does not stop there. Matthew takes us back to Abraham, and Matthew has a specific uh, uh, um, a plan of addressing things pertinent to the nation of Israel. And it's about the Messiah. And so, 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 so uh, Matthew takes him back to David and Abraham. And he speaks about uh, him being the son of David and him being the son of Abraham. But more than that, he's the greatest son of David. So what David only had uh, for a short while, Christ will have in a glorious way when he sits on the throne for a thousand years ruling um, in the millennium and then reigning forever. What Abraham was, uh, a, a one who provided uh, through his loins a multitude of people. So Christ, uh, the son of Abraham, has been the way that millions have been brought into the family of God and become children of God, brothers with Christ, and the seed of Abraham. But you can only become all of this. You can only be the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, if primarily he was the son of God. That's where it all started. Luke takes us backwards in the story. The story starts with God. And it is as a son of God that he, the babe born in Bethlehem, was able to fulfill every prophecy concerning his work and his person. Past, present, and future. God's plans that we recall, that we read about in the Old Testament, doesn't die with the writers of those prophecies. 
The prophecies are fulfilled. And his prophecies are fulfilled significantly in Jesus Christ. And many, particularly at his birth, and many at his coming again. And so God's plan continues to roll out. God has a plan. God is not caught off God. And God will work through one who he has appointed to be the supreme potentate. More than Mary's son. More than Joseph's son. More than David's son. More than Abraham's son. His son. And this, we remind ourselves again, one more time, before we finish this Christmas celebration, what God says about his son through the prophet Isaiah. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And the throne of David and of his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the story of Christmas. This is the story that surrounds the baby Jesus. This is the story about a lowly family who was given the privilege of bringing into this world the Son of God, a God that's himself. And so as we look at him, not only now, but for the rest of this week and the rest of the new year, uh, may we continue to realize that the one who we serve, if we are saved, is the Son of God. There's a clarion call to those of you who do not know him as in this way. There may be some with us this morning who have come along to hear a Christmas message, and this is a Christmas message. This is the core and the kernel of the Christmas message. But you may not know this babe more than just a baby in a Christmas card. You may not know this baby more than when he grew up to be a man who gave you a chance to share Easter eggs. It may mean nothing more than that to you. An icon. An icon on a calendar. He is much more. He's more than we can ever describe. And this morning, he's available to you, uh, not only as uh, the Son of God, but as your Lord and your Savior. And then together with Mary, uh, you can say that he is your Lord, the one who uh, will overwhelm you with his blessing and his goodness. May God give us all grace to live our lives from this point forward in the light of this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our Lord and our Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that you have left for us these jewels of narrative, of prophecy, of accounts, historical events, words of wisdom that all lead us back to Christ as the one who is the supreme potentate, your chosen servant, one of whom you could say in a way which has depth of meaning, this is my beloved son in whom I find all my delight. We pray, Father, as we have considered over this past few days, that we may not move from that, but make him indeed Lord and Savior of our lives. We pray for your grace upon us now in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.